This is 100 Years of Cox. You are listening to a podcast by Francis Thompson. I'm telling the story of 10 siblings from the Machel Cox family through the letters they wrote to each other. They were born in England between 1868 and 1884. Seven of them lived in England and three lived abroad in the colonies. These siblings are my family. Sibling number two, Edmund, is my great-grandfather. In October 1907, Neville, who is sibling number four, is in mainland Europe. He wrote two long letters to his siblings, describing his travels from London to Naples, where he was due to catch his ship back to Africa. He is writing this letter from the Hotel International Olac in the town of Lugano in Switzerland, which is right on the waterfront of Lake Lugano. The hotel was brand new when Neville stayed there, built in 1906, and the Schmidt family still run this grand old historic hotel today. Neville's letter was written on hotel-headed notepaper, with an image of the hotel at the top of the page. I will put both images on Twitter. Neville's letter. Hotel International Olac, Lugano, Switzerland. Wednesday, 23rd of October, put in by Vera. Dear everyone, I'm going to start a budget letter about my travels. It will be all about me, but it may interest you. Do not expect regular letters from me, but I will try and write about my holiday in England later on. I think I'd better post this as I get it written. I left Sydenham at 6.45pm on Friday, October 18th and Bernard accompanied me to town. We had a fine dinner at Liverpool Street Station Hotel, and Bernard saw me safely to the train. It was raining when I started, and still kept at it when the through run was finished at Harwich. No delay in getting on board, and the boat was off within minutes. Not many passengers, and a boy and myself had a cabin to ourselves. Bunks were very roomy, but the partitions between cabins only reached within four inches of the top. And the consequence was some of the neighbours' conversations was decidedly embarrassing. Please correct this word if I've spelled it wrong. The wind was blowing hard and it was decidedly rough. I slept till about 2am and then woke up extremely hot and uncomfortable, but then I slept again until 7.30 when we were called had breakfast, which was an extra charge, and then went on deck. We were going up the River Scheldt with a strong headwind and rain. Country was extremely flat and ugly. As we neared Antwerp, the river was full of shipping and the quay was an exceedingly busy place. The landing place was a long way from the centre of town and we arrived two hours late. The steward showed me the way to the tram I gave him one franc and the tram driver 20 cents as I had three packages on the platform. The fare was 15 cents to the central station, 
a distance of two or three miles. Streets are mostly narrow and dirty, and all the women, I would not call them ladies, go everywhere without any head covering at all, and the handcarts were all helped along by either one or two dogs harnessed underneath, dogs larger than a collie. The station is a very fine one. The language is Dutch and French, but I had no difficulty with English. I simply told the tram conductor, Gar Central, and sat there till he turned me off. I put my bags in the station cloakroom and walked down the town to the cathedral. A charge of one franc to see the different pictures, which are shown at certain hours, everyone else being turned out, and then the curtains are drawn up off the pictures. There are several of Rubens, and what struck me as the most curious was how the same faces occurred in them all. Later on, a guide told us these were his two wives, etc. But you all know more about the pictures than I can tell you. All but one are painted on oak panels, and in certain lights you can see the joints easily. The various chapels were very fine, and there was some lovely carving, the pulpit being magnificent. I was over two hours there, and then I had lunch. It was useless to attempt to see any other pictures in the time available at my disposal, so I went to the zoo close by the station, which was decidedly interesting, and at 5.26 I left for Cologne. The carriage was very comfortable, a corridor train, but I had a family with two youngsters travelling in the same carriage as me. The little boy would stuff himself, and then within the half hour he was dash, dash, dash. The carriage and my trousers suffered somewhat. As somewhat of a retaliation for the inconvenience and the mess, I immediately began to smoke, and they were rather indignant, as it was not a smoking carriage. Reached Cologne at 11.30pm, another splendid station, and went to the Hotel City, which is brand new and exceedingly comfortable. Bed cost four marks. Hot and cold water in my bedroom and two electric lights, one of which was over the head of the bed and a telephone. On Sunday, I was up at 7.30 and had breakfast, which consisted of a bread roll, butter and jam with tea or coffee. Breakfast has been just the same in each hotel I have stayed in so far. Went to Cologne Cathedral, which is very magnificent outside. Being Sunday, high mass was on. The singing was nothing extra, the boys' voices being too shrill, in my opinion. After high mass, the choir stayed behind and read through some sort of service as hard as they could go. They knelt occasionally, and they went through other various motions, but they were smiling and looking about all the time. The sightseers moved right up to the chancel rails and looked, making audible remarks the whole time. Old men in red stopped any of us going behind the high altar or into the side chapels, and they would not even allow one to ascend the spires, which is allowed, costing one and a half marks each. I expect it was that only two of us wanted to go up the spires. The churches here are very different compared to back home. The inside of Cologne Cathedral, though lofty, is not to be compared with the outside and was disappointing 
I walked through some curious old streets down to the Rhine, which was very narrow. All the streets seemed to be crowded with people. There was a race meeting on in the afternoon. Trams run everywhere. I went into another church, facing the station, which was exceedingly brightly painted and had a lot of gilt everywhere. It was packed with people and the sermon was going on in German. Handcarts in the street were the same as in Antwerp, with dogs harnessed underneath. It was very cold. I decided it was too cold to go down the Rhine by steamer, so I entrained instead. Started at 2pm for Heidelberg, direct. It was a compartment carriage, more comfortable than the Belgian line. It was an exceedingly interesting journey. The Rhine, at times, was uninteresting, but exceedingly pretty in parts, and I'm sure it would be far nicer to do the journey by steamer although not when it is so cold. I preferred the section from Koblenz to Mainz, rather than Köln to Koblenz. Castles were small and insignificant, but the hills on the right bank were very fine. There were endless, heavily laden barges, drawn by tugs going up and down. A curious thing was that I saw no sign of any stock of any sort the whole way. No animals, but many fields of crops. The cultivated land was seemingly divided by furrows, as fences there were none. The Laurelay Rock was nothing very much. I should say the Rhine was overrated, but all the same, to my mind, it is exceedingly pretty, and in the summer would be splendid from a steamer. I changed trains at Mainz, where it was dark and went on to Heidelberg, arriving there at 8.45, and going to the Hotel Lang. Bed cost three marks. I went to another place first, and had to talk a lot of German of a sort, as they could not speak English. But really, they speak English at most of the hotels here. Monday, I was up at seven, found my key would not work in my Gladstone bag, and after a struggle, snapped it off short. Had to send bag to be opened and get a new lock, and it cost me five marks before I was finished. Heidelberg is a delightful old place. The walk along the river promenade is very nice. Lots of quaint old streets and houses, and the students in their bright blue, red, or green caps of all shapes, which are quite a feature of the place. The people look very unathletic and decidedly out of condition. The men were crowded into all the beer halls and were exceedingly free and easy on the streets with the town girls. The men were continually capping each other, or rather those who wore the same coloured caps, whether they were accompanied by a lady or not, and it looked very odd. But then it seems quite a custom amongst German men to cap each other, though not all of them do. The Schloss is quite the feature of Heidelberg. Situated high up on the hillside, it has a grand view over the town and the river, and it is the largest ruin in Germany but it did not strike me in any way as to its great size, 
I should think Warwick Castle is larger than Heidelberg, and Corfe Castle is a much finer ruin. Of course, the dwelling portion of the Schloss is very large and in fair condition, as it was all repaired about 100 years ago, and then it was wrecked by lightning. One of the towers must have been huge, only one quarter of which is left, the French under Napoleon having blown it all up. The college gardens adjoining it are really very fine. Some lovely walks and views. It is all trees of every sort and variety and is kept up by the government. Descending into town again, I went into the Jesuit church, a large, lofty place, very highly decorated, but nothing striking. The old streets and houses were very interesting. In summer, when the river is full, steamers go a considerable way up the river, which must be very pretty. The town is decidedly worth visiting and stopping for a day or two. I left at 3.43 for Basel, on a comfortable compartment train. Country was uninteresting, weather was lovely. Reached Basel in Switzerland at 8.15pm, which is a splendid station. Went to the Park Hotel and was very comfortable. Bed was three francs. On Tuesday, I was up at seven. It was thick fog and I caught the 8.40am train for Lucerne. Corridor train, Italian carriages and very roomy. But the lavatory was a perfect pigsty. Nothing in it. No towel, no soap, nothing. The fog lifted just before we reached Lucerne and Mount Rigi and Mount Pilatus, with the snow caps beyond, looked very fine. Arrived at Lucerne at 10.15, fine, roomy station. Went to the Hotel Rutley, left my bags, and then had a walk through the town. The old covered wooden bridge was very interesting, and every ten yards, where the rafters meet overhead, is a triangular board painted on both sides, some most curious pictures which make you walk with your head up to the danger of other pedestrians. Bridge goes slanting across the river. I saw the great lion and was disappointed. More curious old streets. The lake looked very pretty. After lunch, I found I had time to take the steamer to Vitznau and then rail up the Rigi and be back by 7.45pm. So, as I was one day ahead of my time, I decided to stay over. Not many on the steamer. Only seven of us went up the Cog Railway, which took over one hour. Views continually changing the higher one got, till as one neared the summit, all the snow peaks suddenly showed to the south. On the summit, the panorama was very fine. The flat land stretching over the lake, right away to the Black Forest, and the French Jura Mountains to the northwest was an extraordinary contrast to the southern and southwest and southeast view when all the snow peaks showed. Mount Pilatus in the west looked quite insignificant. The monk looked like one of the finest, but the Jungfrau only showed a small peak. I needed my field glasses to see some of the peaks well, and I was glad I had remembered to take them. I don't think the view of the snow mountains is to be compared with the Rockies and the Selkirks, the peaks which Wilfred will remember to the east of Creighton Valley in British Columbia, and showing up from the top of the Camel's Hump, 
a hill behind my cabin, or rather a mountain, were much bolder in outline, with extraordinary and fantastic shapes, regular spires, ridges, etc. The Rockies and the Selkirks from Sugar Lake Mountain were far ahead. Of course, this view in Switzerland embraced far and away more country, as we had mountains all around, and the contrast between north and south were wonderful. The sun set whilst we were up there, and though there was a grand sky, yet there was absolutely no reflection on the snow caps or on the lakes below. I heard others say, oh how lovely, etc., but I was greatly disappointed. Arthur would have enjoyed the sky. It was turning very cold before we went down. Reached Vitznau at 6.40pm and the steamer was waiting. The best thing of the whole lot now occurred. When we were in the middle of the lake and about two miles from Vitznau, the sky gradually got lighter behind the riggy coulm and one realised the moon was rising. I watched it through my field glasses and gradually the outside edge of the moon showed over the summit and almost directly the full moon was showing. It really was glorious and beat anything I ever saw. I only wish it could have stayed just behind the summit all the time instead of rising any further. How I wish you could all have seen it. Reach Lucerne at 7.45, had supper, too late for table d'hote and went to bed 9.30, rather tired. Up at seven this morning, Wednesday, in Lucerne, went round town and bought some photos. A thick, thick mist, nothing at all to be seen. Caught the 9am paris Milan Express to Lugano, and here I will stop and end my first instalment. I find it rather lonely at times, but I'm enjoying myself very much have got on all right so far without any language but English. I found that as long as one knows how to count in German and French, one can do all right. I will tell you all something which will amuse you. I got rather mixed up at the post office and I asked for deux timbres postales, ein für fünf und zwanzig centime, et deux pour dix centimes. The clerk was amused and asked me in broken English if I always talked that way. Of course, a knowledge of French and German is more useful, but is not really essential unless you get off the beaten track. It is 10.30pm. Good night from Lugano in Switzerland. I will post this tomorrow. Notes on Neville's letter. I've just spent a few enjoyable hours looking up all the places Neville visited. Bernard and Neville have dinner at Liverpool Street Station Hotel and then Neville's train goes from London to Harwich in Essex. The boat takes Neville to Antwerp in Belgium and straight away he is shocked at how different mainland Europe is to England. He comments that the women are not wearing hats and so he wouldn't describe them as ladies. If you look at any photos of England in the early 1900s, everyone wore hats out of doors, whether in summer or winter. Even children wore hats and bonnets. It was an accepted way of life. 
The Cathedral of Our Lady in Antwerp still has the famous paintings by Rubens. Neville paid one franc to look at the paintings in the cathedral in 1907. Entrance today will cost you six euros. Neville takes a train from Antwerp to Cologne and is impressed with his hotel. Two electric lights in a hotel bedroom, including a light next to the bed. This was something new and fancy for Neville to record in his letter. As children, the siblings would have had candles in their bedrooms, possibly, and later the house would have had gaslight, so electric lights would still be considered very modern in 1907. I think Arthur's school, Garfield House in Plymouth, still had gaslight in 1907. Installing electric light was expensive. And Edmund lives in a rectory, which is owned by the Stanton Ironworks. In later letters, it is clear that his house still has gaslight until the 1920s. And Neville's hotel room had its own telephone as well. In 1907, the majority of the siblings had not yet used a telephone. Quite a few of them were scared of the idea. It's not clear when the term continental breakfast started being used, and Neville doesn't appear to know the term. He is describing a continental breakfast though, and he sounds surprised that he hasn't been offered a breakfast of ham, eggs or kippers, especially as he is staying in comfortable hotels. The family are wealthy, with live-in cooks and maids. I think I'd possibly have a hot breakfast every day if I had a cook to make it for me. Neville is fascinated by the River Rhine. It is clear that he's not travelled through Europe before, and he encourages his siblings to visit in the summer, when the weather is better. I'd never heard of the Lorelei Rock before. There appears to be disagreement as to whether you pronounce it Lorelei or Lorelei or Lorelei. It's 132 metres high, right on the banks of the River Rhine in Germany. Legend has it that a German maiden threw herself off the top into the river in despair over her unfaithful lover. The myth is that she was transformed into a mermaid and she then lured fishermen to their deaths. It is a place of music and legend and I'm sure the view from the top, looking down on the river, must be lovely. But Neville is travelling in the autumn, it's cold and he's not very impressed by the rocky hill. Neville next manages to break the lock of his leather Gladstone bag and he can't get it open. His overnight hotel costs three German marks, but getting his bag fixed cost five marks. Today, if I was able to travel, would I pay more than one night's accommodation to get a bag fixed, or would I buy a new bag? I suppose this means that Neville's leather Gladstone bag probably cost more than one night at a hotel. Neville's next stop is Heidelberg. Schloss is the German word for castle, and photos of it online show a fabulous castle, partly renovated, but some of it still in ruins. Neville does make me laugh. He enjoys his visit, but he says Warwick Castle is bigger, and Corf Castle is a better ruin. Both of those castles are in England. Tourism was clearly well established by 1907, and there were a lot of steamers on the Rhine. Neville gets a train to Lucerne in Switzerland next, and this train has very dirty toilets. And he describes an old wooden bridge which crosses the river. 
There are actually two ancient wooden covered bridges and both have triangular shaped paintings attached to the roof beams above your head. Thanks to online maps, you can visit Lucerne from your armchair and see these lovely old wooden bridges. If you use Street View, you can drop the little yellow figure down onto the bridge and see it all quite clearly. Neville is quite right. If you walked across the bridge, looking up at the paintings above your head, you'd bump into people. I've just been enjoying the 360 degree views from the top of Mount Rigi, using Street View, and the views of the surrounding mountains are indeed breathtaking. It's great exploring Europe via computer if you can't do it in person. My Machel Cox relatives would be astounded. Neville took a steamer across Lake Lucerne to Vitznau before taking the Cog Railway up to the top of Mount Rigi. The railway, which Neville describes, opened in 1871, and there were only seven passengers on it on a cold October day in 1907. I think it was probably pulled by a steam engine. And Neville loves the view and is pleased that he remembered his binoculars, although I do like the delightful term field glasses although he can't help comparing the Swiss mountains with the Rockies and the Selkirks in Canada. Neville either lived and worked in British Columbia, or perhaps he had previously just been visiting Wilfrid in Creighton Valley. In later letters, there is some discussion between Enid and Wilfrid about whether the Swiss or the Canadian mountains are better. And Neville then describes the moon rising and the view of the mountains across the lake from the steamship saying it really was glorious. But he is a bit lonely, and he wishes one of his siblings was with him. Online reviews can be very entertaining. One person asked, is the view from Mount Rigi really worth it? And another review says that the trip up Mount Rigi is an adventure in itself, and the locals call it the Queen of the Mountains. Researching Neville's travels have made me want to plan a holiday to Switzerland. One day, hopefully. De timbre postal. Ein for fünf und zwanzig centime et deux pour dix centime. Apologies for my terrible accent. Neville was asking for two postage stamps, one costing 25 centimes and two costing 10 centimes, using a mixture of French and German. There would be no euros for many decades yet. Neville would have had a pocket full of coins. Belgian francs, German marks, Swiss francs, and Italian lira. Neville is now staying at the Hotel International Olac in the town of Lugano, which is right on the shores of the lake, and the hotel is still there today. This was his first letter. He started his second instalment before he left Lugano, describing another Englishman who is loud and speaks terrible French and shouts at the waiter during dinner. Not the done thing, in Neville's opinion. He then travels south to Lake Como, Milan, Venice, which is very smelly. Then he goes to Rome, Naples and Pompeii. He takes two tours run by the early travel agent, Thomas Cook, also including how much his tour cost and whether he recommends it or not. I will read the second part of Neville's European travels 
in the next podcast episode. 100 Years of Cox, the Machel Cox Budget Letters and all content is subject to copyright and belongs to both myself and the Bodleian Library in Oxford. Machel Cox Letters is on Twitter, where I share budget photos, sketches and interesting bits and pieces. If you have any questions, please write to me, machelcoxletters at gmail.com. You have been listening to 100 Years of Cox. Thank you for listening. Thank you.